Okay, well, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 4, please. Last time Mark actually finished John chapter 4 with Jesus heals an official son. I'm just going back in time a little bit today, back to verse 27, which is really the third part of the story of Jesus, a well, and a shady lady. This is really part three of that same story. He's still sitting by the well. He's still talking to this lady. So we're going to read from verse 27 through 42. If you'd like a title, this message is called Man Overboard. And let's read from verse 27 through to the end of verse 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left a water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has one brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are wide for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believed, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are the Savior of the world. You are in the business of saving men, and you are still in the business of saving today. Lord, that's how we got here too. Your grace, your pursuit of us. Lord, as we sit and listen today, then would we recognize afresh that we listen to the one who saved us. We listen to the voice of the one who died in our place. We listen to the voice of the one who matters most. So, Lord, have your way amongst us. Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, would you come and open blind eyes? Would you come and, where necessary, take people from death to life? You can do this in a moment. So have your way amongst us, Lord. Would we be encouraged? Would we be refreshed? Would we be energized in the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. On the 15th of April, 1912... One of the greatest disasters of all time happened. Because on the 15th of April 1912, after striking an iceberg the day before, the Titanic actually sank. And we just really paid tribute to what is the 100-year anniversary. And so I was reading in the British press that in Southampton, there was a, different, there was a museum opened in Southampton. There were many tributes put towards all that, that took place with the Titanic. And yet, interestingly, nothing was really mentioned by the secular world about John Harper. And yet John Harper, I think, was one of the heroes of the Titanic. And I remember coming across his story some time ago and just being so motivated and so humbled by who he is and the man he is. And so I want to read a story to you. It's his story. It's the story of John Harper. And it reads as follows. It was on the night of April the 14th, 1912 that the RMS Titanic sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters, 
heading unknowingly into the pages of history. On board this luxury ocean liner were many rich and famous people. At the time of the ship's launch, it was the world's largest man-made movable object. It had been reported to be unsinkable. But 11.40 p.m. on that fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side, showering the deck with ice, ripping open five watertight compartments, and the sea began to pour in. On board the ship that night was John Harper and his much-beloved six-year-old daughter, Nina. According to documented reports, as soon as it was apparent that the ship was going to sink, John Harper immediately took his daughter to a lifeboat. It is reasonable to assume that this widowed preacher could have easily gotten on board this boat to safety. However, it never seems to have crossed his mind. He bent down and kissed his precious little girl. Looking into her eyes, he told her, that she would see him again someday. The flares going off in the dark sky above reflected the tears on his face as he turned and headed towards the crowd of desperate humanity on the sinking ocean liner. As the rear of the huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Mr. Harper was seen making his way up the deck, yelling women, children and unsaved into the lifeboats. It was only minutes later that the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion. But actually the huge ship was literally breaking in half. At this point, many people jumped off the decks and into the dark, icy waters below. John Harper was one of them. That night, 1,528 people went into the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And John Harper was seen swimming to as many as he could, seeking to lead them to Jesus before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr. Harper swam up to one young man who had climbed up on a piece of debris. Reverend Harper asked him between breaths, Are you saved? The young man replied that he was not. Harper then tried to lead him to Christ, only to have the young man who was near shock reply that he was not interested. John Harper then took off his life jacket and threw it to the young man and said, Here then, you need this more than I. And he swam away to other people. A few minutes later, Harper swam back to the young man and succeeded in leading him to Christ. Of the 1,528 people that went into the water that night, six were rescued by the lifeboats. One of them was this young man on the debris. Four years later, at a survivors' meeting, This young man stood up and in tears recounted that after Harper had led him to Christ, he had tried to swim back to help other people. Yet because of the intense cold, he had grown too weak to swim. His last words then before succumbing to the frigid waters were, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Does Hollywood remember this man? No. But no matter. This servant of God did what he had to do while some others were trying to buy their way onto the lifeboats and selfishly trying to save their own lives, John Harper gave his life so that others could be saved. John Harper truly was the hero of the Titanic. You know, John Harper was a widower. And so it's barely imaginable than what it would have been like to look at his only daughter, six-year-old Nina, and put her on the lifeboat, and then send her off. Only knows what that would have felt like for him. Only knows what it would have looked like to others as they are looking on. And yet he did it because he wanted to turn around to preach the gospel to others. He had a sense of what was going to happen, and so he wanted to give his life to seeking to save the lost. He wanted to go after them in grace and tell people about Jesus And when you encounter his story, it is humbling and overwhelming, isn't it? It's just incredible as you see his passion for the lost and his commitment, even unto death, to see others come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You know, in God's kindness, it is unlikely that we will ever have to experience something like what John Harper experienced. That situation is unlikely for each and every one of us. The reality is that that isn't reality. And yet today, I want us to have a reality check right at the outset of what we're doing this morning. 
And when we have a reality check at the outset of what we're doing, what you quickly realize is in Sydney, there are men and women in the water absolutely everywhere. There are people drowning. There are people that are outside of God's kingdom. And we, in all grace and all responsibility as Christians, have been sent to them. It's something that we've been given by the Lord to do. He calls us to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He has called us. He says, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. You're up. I'm going to be at the Father's side. And I, yo, I will be with you to the end of the age. But you've got to go. And he causes them by his grace to be all things to all men so that by all means we may be saved. The stark reality is that there are people in our communities, in your workplaces, and in your colleges, and in your life, overboard everywhere. And you and I, we've been called to them. We've been called to dive in behind them and go get them. It is a high and holy calling, is it not? It's an incredible calling on our lives. And the reason for me then why I'm so jazzed about being here at John 4 this week, verses 27 through 42, is because if you want to know in a nutshell what really this passage is about, here's what it's about. It's about the Savior who has called us to win souls, showing us how to win them. That's what this whole passage is about in that text. Earlier on in the text, it is clear that we're the woman at the well. That's the point. We are her. We are on the receiving end of the Savior's grace. And yet as the passage unfolds, it flips. And now he's beginning to communicate to the disciples about the importance of themselves winning people to Jesus. The importance of the harvest. The importance of the field. The importance that there are men and women overboard everywhere. And that we've been called to get them. You know, winning souls, at least for me, I, it can be overwhelming, can't it? You're aware you're called to it. But you can take a look at everybody and you just think, how, how are we going to do this? I mean, they're everywhere. and We're not that articulate. We're not that bright. We can try. But the world seems very appealing and you're aware you're competing against that in some ways all the time. And So you can lack faith, you can walk in unbelief, and I get that, and I can feel that too. I can feel overwhelmed at the task of what it is to win souls, and yet I thank God then, and I praise God for this text. Because this morning, I think the Savior wants to sit us down at the well for the third and final time. He wants to sit us down along with the woman, along with the disciples, so that he can communicate to us how to effectively win souls, to teach us how to teach us in grace, to care for us as his disciples. He doesn't just call us to the task and then says, okay, go try your best. He calls us to the task and then says, okay, sit down. I'm going to tell you how to do this. I'm going to show you and I'm going to communicate how it is then that you are going to work through in your lives what it is to make disciples of all nations. And he gives us four things, four things then that I want to focus on for the rest of our time this morning. Here's the first the first principle of what it is to be an effective soul winner. Number one, effective soul winners overcome barriers. Effective soul winners, in fact, always overcome barriers. Look again at verse 27. It says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. See, what you've got to remember is that while we have been unpacking verses 1 through 26 over the last few weeks, the disciples haven't been there. The disciples have been off buying food in the city for Jesus. Okay, So they haven't had all the background that we've had over the last few weeks. They haven't understood yet all that has taken place with this lady. They haven't understood yet Jesus' heart for this lady and all that has taken place. All they do is come back with the same prejudice that they left with. And they come back then and they are absolutely incredulous with the Saviour Because he's talking to this woman. See, when it said that they marveled, it's not in a positive way. They're not giving him high five. They just can't work it out. What are you doing? You're a rabbi. You're talking to a woman. See, rabbis, as we've said before, they 
They're not meant to talk to women. That was the culture of the time. If you're a great teacher, you had to be so far above reproach that even talking to a woman could be construed in a certain way. So they wanted to cut you off from women in any ways possible. So the disciples return and they see the Savior talking to this woman. Not just any woman. A Samaritan woman. Jews hate Samaritans. And not just any Samaritan woman, but an adulterous Samaritan woman. And so they return, and they are just in absolute shock. They are marveling at him in the sense of, what are you doing? What is this? They are absolutely incredulous with the Savior. But the Savior saw beyond all those things, didn't he? He saw beyond the fact she was a woman. He saw beyond the fact that she was a Samaritan woman. He saw beyond the fact that she was an adulterous Samaritan woman. He saw a lost soul. He saw someone that was in the water. Someone he loved. Someone he wanted to go after. Someone he sought to seek and save. See, effective soul winners always overcome barriers. It's not that they don't see them. It's just that they overcome them. Because beyond the barrier, they see a soul that needs saving. And so that's really where we start in understanding that effective soul winners, if that's going to be us, then we must, by the grace of God, always overcome barriers. So let me ask you this question. Is there anyone out there that you wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live? Is there any individual in your life, maybe somebody that you already know, you're already acquainted with this individual, but because of the way they live or because of who they are, you don't really want to reach out to them? Or maybe it's somebody you don't know, but it's somebody you would pass in the street, somebody in your workplace who you would kind of just brush off slightly because of their lifestyle or because of who they are. You know, it's kind of awkward and you just try and keep out of the way of them. Is there anybody like that in your life? Maybe someone whose language is in the gutter. This is to spend time with them for you is painful because you don't like bad language. So the temptation is just to keep out their way. and It's not that you don't care about them, but, you know, I'll just keep out of my way because I'm, I'm a Christian and I don't want that. Maybe somebody who's a practicing homosexual, either in a gay relationship or a lesbian relationship, and because of that, you just keep your distance. Maybe they stink of alcohol. Or you're aware that they're a drug abuser and they spend time taking drugs or drinking in a heavy way. Maybe an individual who is strongly pro-choice or pro-abortion and every time you encounter them then, you are gnarled by the fact that this is what they stand for and you find it offensive and that causes you to put barriers up between you and them. Maybe somebody who's passionately feministic and so they stand in complete opposite to what we stand for as Christians when it comes to men and women. Maybe a man or a woman who has a past. Maybe even a criminal record. And so you're happy for somebody else to reach out to them. But as for me and my house, I'm keeping out of the way because they have a past. And I don't want my family being affected by their story or who they are. I mean, are we even safe? Or maybe somebody because of their race or because of their religion. That we put them in the too hard box. That they're unlikely to become Christians. And so we put this barrier between us and them. That stops us reaching them. Because we just think, that's unlikely. They'll probably not become Christians. It's too much. Listen, is there anyone in your life out there. That you wouldn't reach out to because of who they are. Because of the way they live. Because if there is. Then behold the incredulous disciple in you. In that moment, you're no different. The disciples coming back and looking at Jesus, thinking, what's this? Talking to a woman? A Samaritan woman? An adulterous Samaritan woman? Folks, when we do that in our lives, if there is anyone, anyone, because of their gender, or race, or religion, or sexual preference, or practice, that we would not reach out to because of who they are, or what they stand for, then behold the incredulous disciple in us. Listen, we're not called to condone or applaud 
or support blatant sin in others. We are not. And there are times when we must stand for truth and be unwilling to be a party to another person's sin. There is without doubt, as we study and read our Bibles, a time for that. And yet we must also understand and be fettered and caused by the truth that these men and women that we find so difficult are in the water. They're drowning. It's only a matter of time. And we are called by grace to go after them. How dare we not reach out to a man or woman who is drowning in the water while we sit in the lifeboat because of who they are, because of what they believe. That is not right. And where we observe that in our lives, we have to repent and we have to ask for forgiveness and we have to change because there are men and women in the water everywhere and we've been called to go get them. Effective soul winners, then number one, overcome barriers. That's what we saw with Jesus. He didn't care. He just loves them. He wants to go get them. That's what we've got to do too. If we want to be effective, we've got to see beyond preference to a lost soul. Number two, Second thing that Jesus points out to us is that effective soul winners pursue transcendent food. Let's read verse 31 again. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, in a moment of absolute comedy, said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know, when Jesus arrived at the well, as you see in verse 6, it says that he was wearied from the journey. He's tired. I mean, he has just spent weeks reaching people in Judea. He's been preaching the gospel, telling them about what it means to be saved. His disciples all around them have been discipling these people and baptizing these people. As they left then Judea, he's been on a three-day long and difficult walk to Sukkah. And when he arrives, he is wearied, he is tired. No doubt, without question, the disciples being the disciples, probably would have yacked his head off the entire way. He would have been sorting their squabbles out the entire way. And he now sits by the well and he is tired. So he sends the disciples off to buy some food. He's hungry. So guys, you go... I'll sit here. You go buy some food. And as he sits there then, he encounters this woman, and by the time that the disciples then return, which would have taken them some time, by the time they return, (laughs) he's not hungry anymore. And so they are just looking at him saying, what is your problem? You said you were hungry. We went off to the city to buy food. We come back. Now you're completely jazzed. You are not hungry at all anymore. They assume then, as they look around at the crowd, that somebody's fed him. So they're basically up for a fight in verse 33. Okay, who has fed him? You know, they are just like, what is up with this? Has someone brought you food? And he explains to them, guys, no. I'm not hungry anymore because my food is to do the will of the Father. And that is exactly what he has been doing since they left, has he not? As they have gone into the city to buy food, he has sat there by the well, reaching out to this Samaritan woman. She's tried to deflect him on a number of occasions, but he has just kept coming back with clarity and care in the gospel as he seeks to share with her what it is to enjoy eternal life, what it is to enjoy true spiritual water. She comes to know him as Lord and Savior. And the result, without question, is that he is completely jazzed. He is completely overwhelmed and excited about what is taking place. And as a result, when the disciples come back, he's not hungry anymore. He's full. He's been serving the Father since they left. And so he has a food that transcends the conscious need for physical food. This is a transcendent food that he has been enjoying due to the excitement of the situation that has just unfolded in front of him. You see, to really understand this food, I think we have to understand Jesus' overwhelming love for the lost. And I don't use the word overwhelming there in an exaggerated way. His love for the lost 
is overwhelming. See, in Britain, one of the big stories of 2007 was the day when Madeleine McCann went missing. And I'm aware that that news came over here as well. And for us as a nation, that was, that was a big deal. See, on the 3rd of May in 2007, Madeleine McCann, nine days before her fourth birthday, went missing. She was in Portugal at the time with her parents and her family. And her parents decided that they would have a meal in a cafe opposite where the children were actually sleeping. And so they left them in that room. They closed all the doors and locked the doors. And then they proceeded to go off and have a meal in a cafe and a table where they could actually still see the home. But by the time they returned to the home in Portugal, they found that a window at the back had been broken and somebody had come in and taken Madeline. Nine days before her fourth birthday. As a result, in Britain, literally the nation was praying for her. There was unbelievers starting to pray at football matches, which is just a, a big occasion in our history. Everybody was wearing find Madeleine McCann pictures. They just wanted to spread the word of her existence. They wanted people to, to find her. The whole nation began caring for this four-year-old. Well, to date, she still hasn't been found. But I want you to imagine for a moment that somewhere in this time, you found her. Imagine, imagine you found her. Imagine that moment of finding this little four-year-old girl and realizing this is her. Imagine then the joy and the exhilaration and the satisfaction that that would give you as you embrace her and as you begin to take her back to her parents. Take her back to the people she was made by and made for. Take her back to those that love her most. Imagine the exhilaration and the joy that you would experience as you realize this is her. And she's saved. And I'm taking her home. Imagine the joy and the exhilaration and the satisfaction that you would feel in that moment. Well, listen, in a spiritual realm, that is exactly what Jesus is experiencing in this moment. He's aware that this is a woman that I've come to seek and save. And she's responded to me. She's responded. She is now experiencing eternal life. And so I am embracing her. And I am taking her back to the Father. I'm taking her back to those who made her. Those who ultimately she will stand before and enjoy. She is now gone from death to life. She is going from orphan to adopted. And so he is literally ecstatic. He's doing the Father's will. And as a result, it's no surprise, is it, that he's not hungry anymore. Does that make sense? He's so affected. She was lost. But now she's found. So I have food you don't know anything about. I'm full. Because since you've gone, I've been doing the Father's will. And I'm ecstatic. You know, one of the things I so love about this text then is that it quickly becomes apparent that this food is on offer to us too. It's not just for Jesus, okay? The point and the context is that he's offering it to us as well. See, in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And it can appear at first look that he's rubbing their noses in it. They're just like a six-year-old birthday party, you know, when everybody else is finished. And there comes out a special piece of chocolate cake for the birthday boy. And the birthday boy just wants to let you know, I have something you don't. And he's just spreading the rumor that you ain't got it, but this is mine. You can think that that's what's happening here at first glance. It can be perplexing. But in reality, Jesus is whetting their appetite. He's saying, listen, I have a food that you don't know about. But his whole premise as he begins to explain to them about this food is this. I have a food that you don't know about. So I'm going to tell you about it. And I want you to come and taste it. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to have the same food that I am eating. I want you to enjoy a food of joy and exhilaration and satisfaction as you also do the Father's will. For as the Father has sent me, I now send you. I want you to enjoy this food, disciples. I want you to taste of it. My friends, maybe it's been a while since you've tasted this food. 
Maybe it's been a while since you've reached out to somebody genuinely and sat with them and loved them enough over time to really seek to win them for Jesus. Maybe it's been a while since you shared the gospel with somebody and enjoyed the exhilaration of that moment, knowing that you are doing the Father's will. Maybe it's been a while since you've seen anybody come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you never have. Maybe you've never really purposely befriended somebody and to been a friend of sinners to them like Jesus was. Never you, maybe you've never really shared the gospel with somebody. Maybe you've never seen anybody come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so in reality, this food sounds tasty to you, but you've never experienced it. My friends, the point of this text is Jesus holding out to you food and saying, I have a food that you don't know anything about. I'm going to tell you about it. It comes through telling people about Jesus. It comes through doing the Father's will. Come and taste it. Do you see it? Behold, this is a food that he's offering for you. Effective soul winners then pursue it. They realize it and they, they want it. They want to taste it. They want to know the joy of the Lord as they reach out to people with purpose and grace. We want to be those effective soul winners, don't we? And so we too need to pursue it. Here's the third thing. Number three, effective soul winners perceive urgent opportunity. There's so many opportunities in soul winning, I think are missed because of a wrong assumption about God, and particularly about a wrong assumption about God's work and the way he works in salvation. See, we've all heard stories, have we not, about individuals who get saved at like 80, even though somebody's been praying for them since they were 10. You know, we've all heard these stories of just lengthy, long-term prayers for an individual, and then on their deathbed, they get it. They come to know Lord and Savior. And I think that's great. And we should celebrate with absolute magnificence anybody's salvation ever. I mean, this is amazing when somebody comes to know the Lord. And if it takes an individual to pray for them all those years, then we should do that with faithfulness. We should do that with diligence. And we should continue to share the gospel with people for all those years. And yet, I think we can focus all our evangelism as if that's the way it's always going to work. So everything just slows down. Because the assumption is it just takes years. It takes ages. You've got to reach out for somebody for you know, at least 10 years and then they might come to know him at Lord and Savior. And you read all these statistics and you think, oh, all right. As if it's just that there is a natural norm of reaching out to people that have to take place before an individual comes to know the Lord. We have a wrong assumption that God is always going to take his time in saving people. And it is that wrong assumption that Jesus now addresses here in verses 35 and 36. Listen up. This is what he says. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. In verse 36, it does not stand out in the crowd. But historically, verse 36 should stand out in the crowd because it is hugely significant. Because verse 36, Jesus is pointing back and making allusion to Amos chapter 9, verse 13. An Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. An Old Testament prophecy about the time that will come in the Messiah's reign. See, Amos chapter 9, verse 13 says this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Well, that's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? And that's why it's often not really known about. It's like, oh, that, thanks, thanks for playing. What is that? What, what do you mean? How does this work? The plowman overtakes the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. That's, that's very odd. It's kind of the wrong way round. You know, usually you, you plant and then you harvest and you plant and you harvest. But the point of what he's saying there in Amos chapter 9 is this. God is saying, a day is coming when the natural laws of sowing and reaping in a spiritual sense will be completely replaced by supernatural laws. 
A day is coming when it will no longer just work on sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping. It will no longer work just on a time scale of what it takes to harvest. A day is coming when the Messiah comes, when the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. A day is coming when the sower and the reaper, who knows what time limit that will be? Because God, through the power of the gospel, can save in a moment. A day is coming when the natural laws of sowing and reaping will not apply in the spiritual realm. A day is coming when God, by his incredible grace and through the power of the gospel, can save people in a moment. And what Jesus then is saying is this. You know what that time is? (laughs) It's now. Because I'm here. That time is now. So disciples, you say four months and then comes the harvest. And I know that's what you're used to thinking, that four months you have to stand around and wait for the harvest to come. But I'm telling you that a time is coming when that's not the case, and that time is now. I have, in divine grace, joined the sower and the reaper together. And so lift up your eyes, disciples. Lift them up and see that the fields are already ripe for harvest. Don't you love it? In his sovereignty, he's now brought time together. And so it does not mean that we will still not be reaching out to people for decades and decades. But what he is doing is trying to influence his disciples and help them see that you should not assume that that will be the natural norm. Because in my grace and in my power, I can save people in a moment. Leon Morris, in his wonderful commentary on John, says the natural seed may be planted But there is no way of getting around the months of waiting. Four months have to elapse between the end of seed time and the beginning of harvest. Growth is slow and cannot be hurried. But Jesus did not share this view when applied to spiritual things. He had an urgent sense of mission and these words convey something of it to the disciples. They must not lazily relax, comfortable in the thought that there is no need to bestir themselves. For the fields are even now ready for harvest. Isn't that wonderful? He's trying to inspire them with faith that I am sovereign. I am good. There's no longer an assumption that it's going to take four months. It's going to take six months. It's going to take a year. It's going to take ten years. Lift up your eyes, Sovereign Grace Church. The fields are ready for harvest. We've got to go. And we go knowing that God is ministering to people. And there is a harvest in reality already there to reap. we just got to go. And you know, that's why it's so important when it comes to winning souls that we are, as a congregation and as individuals, I think up and ready and on our toes to win people for Jesus. I mean, seriously. I think so many opportunities are lost, sadly, in Christianity and in soul winning because we're just not ready. You know, as a kid, I've always played soccer and football, I call it. But I say to people, I play football, and they think I'm AFL, and then they look at me and laugh. So I have to keep calling it soccer now. So I've always played soccer, and even as a kid, I remember being coached as a kid. And my coach always used to say to me, Taylor, you've got to be up on your toes. And the premise was that, you know, as the ball is coming past you, if you're sitting back kind of relaxing, which has tended to be my approach to, to soccer... Um, you're not really ready. And so the, the ball would come past and the court would come whizzing past or the person would come whizzing past and it took you time to get off the back of your feet under the front of your feet and then you would basically go get them. And his premise was, you are going to miss so many balls and so many people if you're always resting back on the back of your feet. And he was right. So I decided to take his counsel and start playing on my toes. So when then the ball is coming past you, you're far quicker to the ball because you're already ready rather than resting back. You know, I think what Jesus is trying to encourage us to hear as our ultimate coach is that we need to be on our toes when it comes to evangelism. You see, there are so many opportunities in our lives, unless it just happens to me, that I think we miss. They whiz past us every day because we're just back on the back of our feet. We're not ready for them. And so somebody says something and you think, oh, I, I should tell them about, and by the time you thought about that, they've gone, the conversation's moved on, and you just weren't ready, and you think, oh, that would have been a great opportunity to challenge them or to say something about Jesus, but the opportunity's gone, because we're back on our feet. I think the effective soul winner is in part effective because they perceive the urgent opportunity. 
They realized God in a moment could change lives. Maybe even tomorrow God wants to save people by his grace. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord for help and I'm going to go about my day on my toes. I think the effective soul winner lives like that. They're constantly looking, Lord, where are you moving? What are you, what are you doing? What do you want me to say? How do you want to use me? You know, everybody is a missionary, folks. Everybody. Some people go do it full-time overseas, but the vast, vast, vast majority of us are called to do it right here. Where is your field? Where you work? Where you go to school? Your college? Your street? Your community? Your clubs? That's our field. So we need to be on our toes and ready. Effective soul winners perceive urgent opportunity. And finally, last but without question not least, Effective soul winners realize who is with them. Read verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You know, the real key to understanding this verse lies, I believe, in understanding who the others are in verse 38. See, he specifically says there that he is calling the disciples to reap where others have labored. But there's no clarification on who those others are. Now, you read different commentaries, and there are lots of ideas of who the others are. But I submit to you, the others are simply this. They are twofold. The others, in part, are the Old Testament prophets and writers. The others start, the sowers, the original sowers, are those people that God has called by his grace to write inspired scripture. Prophets that said, thus saith the Lord, as they reached out to Israel and the nations. People that then scribed it down, that wrote it down for us. This is the sowing seedbed, amen? This is where it started. And so by the time Jesus is on the scene, the work has already started to be sowed out. The idea that God exists, that there is a coming saviour. Of who he is. What is he going to be like? So all the Old Testament writers and all the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist being the final example of that. One who says himself, behold. The Lamb of God. The one who comes to take away the sin of the world. He was the final Old Testament prophet. So in part the others of that which we are reaping. Well in part is the Old Testament writers. And the Old Testament prophets. And yet I think to you the most significant other. It's Jesus himself. It's him. It's the one that looks back at them from the well as he communicates his word to them. The star of the entire show is Jesus. Who is the star of John? Jesus. Everywhere you look in the book of John, it's always about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? Jesus. He turns up at a wedding and changes everything around. He goes into a temple and whips and drives people out. Such is his passion for the temple. Jesus is the one pursuing people. Jesus is the one discipling people. Jesus is the one calling people. It's all about Jesus. He's the significant other. And when you realize that, I think this has glorious application to us today. See, Matthew 28 We receive the call to go, don't we? To go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We receive in that verse a clear command on our lives to go. And yet I think all too often we forget verse 20. Because Matthew 28 verse 20 I think gives us some of the most comforting words in the whole of Scripture. Because in Matthew 28, following on from the call on our lives to go make disciples, Jesus says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, that is brilliant news. That is the best news you are going to ever hear in soul winning. The simple and yet wonderful news that Jesus is with us. And I think it is that that he's trying to draw our attention to right here at the well. He's trying to help communicate to them that I am the chief sower. And I will be with you to the end of the age. My friends, this, I believe, is a complete and utter game changer. 
We never dive into the waters of mission alone. We dive into the waters of mission realizing that Jesus is with us. Jesus, the one who has been given all authority on heaven and on earth to use for God's glory. Jesus, who in a moment can bring people from death to life. Jesus, who in a moment can raise the dead. Jesus, who in a moment can heal blind eyes. Jesus, who in amazing grace can take our bumbling efforts of care and illiterate language that we so often use, I certainly do, and change it in a moment so that somebody hears it and comes to know the Lord as Lord and Savior even through our bumbling efforts. We never go into mission alone because, lo, He is with us to the end of the age. Jesus, the most significant other, is always with us. And that changes everything, doesn't it? See, our labor is important. It's vital. Romans 10 tells us, you know, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. But how can they call upon his name if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him unless somebody tells them? Our labor is so important and vital in this context. And yet we must also understand by the grace of God that our labor, the labors that we perform, we are only ever entering into the labors of another. And that another is Jesus. And we need to understand that it is his labors that will ultimately win in the end. (laughs) Way beyond our labors. There's a savior who wants to save those individual souls Through us, but also despite us. Because he is committed to the lost. He is committed to the waters of Sydney. He is committed to seeing people come to know him as Lord and Savior. So our labor is important, but we must understand that it is his labors that we enter into, and it is his labors that ultimately will win in the end. You know, seen correctly, that should bring great comfort and great faith for the road ahead. You ever walked into situations and just thought, I can't can't do this. They're never going to believe me. They're never going to come to know. Probably true if it's just you. But it's not. God is with you to the end of the age. The very fact that your family is your family, the very fact that you work where you work, that you live where you live, are divine setups. It's God orchestrating. And he wants us to win people. But behind all that is a winning saviour who is always pursuing, always seeking, always desiring to save. You know, when John Harper dived into the icy waters of the Atlantic on the 15th of April 1912, he did so to save souls. He wanted to see people come to know Jesus as their Lord and saviour. And his story, I think, is overwhelming and compelling and motivating, isn't it? But folks, I want to encourage you, just in closing, listen, it's so important that we understand, just as an aside, our justification, your justification, before the Lord, does not depend upon your performance before the Lord. Do not move off that point. Your standing before the Lord is not based upon how well you win souls or not. Because maybe you just haven't been very good at it. And I'm aware when you haven't been very good at it, we can be sitting here in these moments just feeling condemnation. Of, oh my God, another thing I've got to do, another thing I'm not very good at. You need to understand that your justification before God and acceptance by God is not dependent in any way upon your performance before God. He sings over you this morning as a child of God. He sings over you this morning as one who has been forgiven, one who has been redeemed, one who has been justified, one who without question is knowing that heaven is their home and he sings over you because you're part of his family and he loves you and sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is not a justification issue. It plays no part. It is not the cross plus my soul winning efforts equals acceptance. It is the cross and Jesus alone that equals acceptance and love and unmerited favor. But I also want to encourage you as people who have been called by God, let us live then in a manner worthy of the calling that we received. And we have been called by God's grace 
to win souls. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people in Sydney who are overboard. Men and women, lost, drowning, overboard. You and I, we've been sent to them. We've been sent by God to go and make disciples of them. We've been positioned by God and equipped by God to do that. And so, folks, I want to encourage you. Let's go get them then. Let's dive in. And let's do all we can to swim to them like John Harper did and tell them about the goodness of the Savior. Effective soul winners overcome barriers. Effective soul winners pursue transcendent food. Effective soul winners perceive urgent opportunity. And effective soul winners realize who is with them. Would that be our story? And by God's grace then, would many people in Sydney come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior as we dive in? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who desires to give us vision. And as we encounter your word, it is not hard to see your vision for the lost. Lord, that is what the whole of the book is about. The greatest rescue mission ever told. The greatest rescue mission to rescue lost souls. Lord, how incredible then and compelling that you've now called us to be a part of this mission. For your story in written word is complete. And yet your story through the lives of your called ones is still being written because you are seeking and saving the lost still to this day. Oh Lord, would you give us grace then for the task ahead? Would you equip us and strengthen us and compel us to go about the task of telling this nation about you? Lord, would we never tire of this task? Would we never tire of telling people about you? Would we enjoy this transcendent food? Would it be the food that we live on as we take the gospel And dive in and swim to people who don't know you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.